each of us in our own way, the four of us, been emphasizing to not turn away from the facts of what is, uh, the importance of self-discovery, relationship, and also a, a paradigm or a model of how to look at practice as life to begin with that is coming up here as one slice of life. And this correct action here is, we all know what it is, we've been doing it and it's quite remarkable. We have over a hundred people, in a sense strangers show up in silence. It's amazing that it works as well as it does. Different cultures, different countries, Silence, important, and what it is we're learning, we're all here for that, to unify us. And so there's certain, what's correct action here, um, we try to spell that out, and sometimes people need to, some help for it to be clarified. And this is as much a part of life as when we go back, as we will be in, in a little while. but. When we go back, it's not that we're, we're not going back to the real world, and this is sort of a make-believe world. There's only one world. There's only, there's only daily life, wherever you look. This is it. Now, if we dress differently and define it differently, we're welcome to do that as different stage sets. But certainly from an individual point of view, you're always, wherever you are, there you are again. And we'll be moving into different situations, each one of us somewhat uh, our own unique situation. And then the question is, what is correct action? That keeps unfolding. What I'd like to do this this, uh, morning, at least the beginnings of bringing what we've been learning, um, a sense of it to what awaits us. Because one of the things that no doubt awaits all of us is we, when we leave here, there will be talking and there will be people. Not just people in silence, but we'll be talking to each other and doing things together and traveling. It's in terms of the conditions, terms of forms, very different from what's going on here. So then correct action, what will that be? Um, once we leave here, Issues of how to behave become central. And I think underlying what we've all been saying all week is, the, is wisdom. Uh, understanding, vipassana, it's a wisdom path. So there are many things that we do, but they're all to supplement and to enforce, to inspire, to direct the cultivation and the living of wisdom. Now that's a nice word. and I have never met anyone who disparages it. We all like wisdom, but it means very, very different things, and there are different levels of it. Uh, Let me uh, spell out some of it. For example, I don't know, when I was a child, my father would read to me from Aesop's Fables. It was Krilov, a Russian version of it, very similar. And the wisdom, it was definitely a wisdom book, and it wasn't just for children, but uh, it was mainly animals and how animals did foolish things. And uh, the, one, the only thing I remember from it is there's a, 
an eagle, a horse, a crab, they're all trying to pull a wagon. And it doesn't work. So my father would say something like, as I recall, why doesn't it work? Well, the eagle just wants to go up and the horse wants to go straight and the crab just wants to go down. So what do you think is going to happen? He says, well, they won't be able to pull the wagon. He says, right. So what have you learned from that? And I don't know. <laughs> and then he, he wouldn't leave me alone until I finally, do you have any situations in your life that are like that? I don't think so. I'm, you know, Oh, yeah. Like, I like Jay Goldberg. He's a great guy. But all he ever wants to do is, is just go to the cafeteria when we have free time and eat and talk. But Herbie Eisenberg and Marty Hoffman, they like to play ball. And so I, I don't like them as much, but we all want to do the same thing. And I get tired of going to the cafeteria and just eating and talking. I'd much rather play punch ball, stick ball, and three-man basketball and stuff like that. And he said, so it's a, it applies to us as well. It's not just the crabs and eagles and horses. And he said, yeah, I guess so. But so it's a certain level of wisdom, a certain level of wisdom. Then it can develop. It keeps developing because... Um, There's a level of wisdom that is more subtle. Um, it's still not quite what we mean here, although it's not against it. In fact, when we get to what, what do we mean when we say wisdom here, you'll see that it encompasses what was just said. Uh, for example, let's see if this, I think this might be helpful, I'm not sure. Uh, Groups that have been discriminated against a lot and have been uh, treated very harshly, like Jews, African Americans, and so forth, perhaps, you know, you know, whatever your group is, if you're a member of it, typically they have humor uh, that en enables them to portray their oppressors as kind of fools, and they come out as brilliant at least in, in, in the humor, and they t exchange it with each other. Because in real, in the life that isn't with each other, uh, they're, they're not treated that way. So it's a kind of an escape hatch. And so this is Tsarist Russia. Two old Jews get on a train. And if you know anything about the history of that time, the Tsar was not exactly a great friend of the Jews. They would have these pogroms. And, and so it's a Tsarist officer in this cabin. Uh, and an old Jew gets, it's always an old Jew, I don't know why. <laughs> it would be me. <laughs> they get on, and they're sitting there quietly, and uh, suddenly the, uh, the czarist officer, remember, this is a Jewish joke, czarist people are not making up jokes like this. Uh, uh, and the czarist officer says, uh, I hear you, you Jews, you're supposed to be very smart. How come? What makes you so smart? And the old Jew paused and he says, we eat a lot of herring. And he says, hmm. And he gets quiet and then he says, and then the Jew takes out his lunch and he starts eating. He said, what are you eating? He says, herring. So, he, so the Azar's offer gets quiet for a while and he said, uh, would you mind selling me some of the herring? He says, sure, of course. Why not? 
So he sells him a few pieces of herring. And he says, 50 kopecks. I'm making up a number. I have no idea. Uh, and the Tsarstover st starts eating it and chewing on it. And he eats one piece and two pieces. And he says, wait a minute. 50 kopecks. I could get this in Moscow. I was heading for St. Petersburg. I can get this in Moscow for 10 kopecks. And the old Jew pauses and he says, hmm, you see, it's working already. <laughs> So that's a level of wisdom, a certain kind of level. Then let's jump. Uh, then when, uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was introduced to Socrates and Plato, and I fell in love with Socrates and, and still love uh, his basic teachings. An unexamined life is not a life worth living. Uh, who, am, uh, who am I? The, the essential question, how is one to live? Uh, asked all these questions, but there was no help. There was no method. Uh, I think the Buddha is asking the same questions, but there's a lot of help. We have, you know, it's been going on for a few thousand years. We have company and we have techniques and methods, and it's been protected and kept alive and transmitted and modified, improved, and so forth. Um, so that was always working in the background. Uh, I, in other words, the word wisdom has a, always had a spell over me. I didn't quite know what it meant. And wisdom then, especially in college, it's remembering wise words and quoting them at parties and in coffee shops. Uh, it's just wise words. Uh, real wisdom is, is when you live it. it. In other words, wisdom is often defined as the art of living. It's an art, just like any other art. Uh, you, have to, you can learn how to do it. And the Buddha's teaching is a wisdom teaching. And there's an enormous amount of help, and it's about learning how to live, implying that we're not doing a very good job without this help. Does anyone have any disagreement with that? In other words, the human race for, seems forever. We don't seem to know how to do it. And the Buddha's saying, let me help you out. So when I came upon that, uh, of course, I was very attracted to it. Another level now, let's jump and get a lot deeper. Um, one of the teachers I had, uh, Master Sheng Yan, Chinese Chan master, um, he told me traditionally, and he gave, gave this to me as a, a way to practice, he said that uh, in Chan, uh, the way they start people off very early on is to contemplate impermanence, because that's so central to the Buddhist teaching. And if you really grasp what impermanence is about, uh, you, could, you want to talk about suffering? Well, we tend to get fixated in the changing world. It's a setup. Of course there's going to be suffering. It's a head-on collision. The world doesn't care. It just keeps rolling on, insists on being exactly as it is, and we tend to get fixated in our likes and dislikes. So what Master Sheng Yan had me do, he said, spend a few weeks just contemplating the impermanence of nature. In other words, that's outside of myself. Like anything, you know, leaves falling, birds, death, whatever, external. And I did that. It was very, very helpful. In other words, not just think about it. It's a use of thought. This is important because thought has a role. As we practice, it, ha it seems to have less and less of a role. But we'll get to that. And so um, <clears throat> you kind of, you see something, a leaf fall, and then you reflect on it. People have gotten enlightened 
just seeing a leaf fall. And then, but if we all ran out and saw a leaf fall, would we all get enlightened? Of course not. Because the person was ripe. In other words, they, they, the understanding was bone deep. They got it. It's like getting a joke. They got it, not just as an idea, but at different levels of depth. So that it's now part of your, your bones, your blood, your marrow. Okay. Then after that, he said, now, then after that, go to your body. We're getting a little bit closer, a lot closer. And watch, as you meditate, watch all the changes the body's going through, whether it's the breath or sensations in the body or no matter what you want to tell me about. And so you do that. It's getting, we go from external to a little bit more internal. And then after that, now watch the mind, the hardest one of all, because it's the most subtle and it's the most challenging. And you just watch. No thought remains. No mood remains. Likes become dislikes. It just keeps going like that. And you just keep doing that. And then you realize all three are really the same law. We're all part of nature. One meaning of Dharma is natural truth. Buddhism is, is not atheistic, and it's not theistic, it's non-theistic. The Buddha, I think, wisely doesn't take a stand, so you don't get in arguments. Is there a God or isn't my God is better than your God? Uh, just says it's non-theistic. If you want to fight about that, go ahead. I'm not interested in that. I'm only interested in suffering and the end of, it, end of it. You want to believe in God? Fine. But look at your suffering. Well, of course, you know, I was brought up, the Messiah is going to come and take care of all our suffering. He's a little overdue. <laughs> like 3,000 years? Okay. Um, so this was very, very helpful. It's a skillful use of thought. And now let's start to... A skillful use of thought, and did it help my practice in every way in my life? Yes, definitely, no question about it. I recommend it. Do it. You know, you don't have to formalize it so much or codify it. Uh, whenever you're with nature, just reflect on that. And what you'll see is we're, there's just one thing. That we're, we are nature. Everything is nature. It's unfolding. And, and there's some awareness that knows it, which is quite remarkable. Wonderful. Um, what I'd like to uh, uh, talk about is a couple of things for, because we need a practice that's appropriate for us as lay people. And if you stay here or any spiritual center, certainly Dharma centers, you'll hear the word renunciation a lot. Uh, somehow, if you have less, you're more holy. If you have two pair of pants or two skirts, somehow you're more spiritual than somebody who's got a closet full of outfits and uh, lots of High heels, really high ones, you know. <laughs> uh, if you have expensive, beautifully tailored clothes, whew. if you have uh, clothes with holes in them, oh, that person's very spiritual. <laughs> uh, so, and that, it's a kind of a provisional technique. It's especially useful, used in monastic life. Like in Thailand, I... You know, we, those of us who came as lay people, we lived like the monks, one meal a day. Um, and if you had fancy sandals on with a good arch and, and good cushioning made by a wonderful company in Germany, you know, engineered beautifully and really comfortable and good for your feet, uh, Ajahn Mahabur, Matthew knows it, and I've seen him do it to, to monks. 
get rid of that. You have to somehow have flip-flops, you know, that you can get in uh, Walmart for 10 cents or whatever. Uh, terrible for your feet, but at least you're just a very simple, ordinary person. So there is a teaching in it, and you, it's humble. You eat whatever you're given by the villagers. Unless you're sick, then they can make exceptions. It's not totally stupid. Um, so then that gets spread to us, renunciation, and of course, no sex. Uh, and no, uh, and beauty somehow is dangerous. Food is dangerous. Beauty is dangerous. Sex is dangerous. Clothing is dangerous. Money, no money. Everyone else will take care of us. It's dangerous. Can anyone deny that these are dangerous? But is there something dirty about money? It's just energy. It's just green energy. It just well, no, not a good green. <laughs> I'm green, I just want you to know that. No, not today. Uh, what sullies money is us. Uh, this, food is a wonderful, beauty is wonderful, it's part of life. Uh, why, if someone has, dresses beautifully, why does that make you less spiritual? I remember there was, uh, I've forgotten what her name was. She was married to Sri Aurobindo in India. She was French. And she had eye makeup and uh, mascara. And then someone said, oh, she couldn't be very spiritual. Why not? Now, she may not be, but the point is the external indicator, they're just like training wheels. They're used to help you. But I think the real test is something is inside and how you behave. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, not looking at the recipe. Uh, so I think for us, uh, because we do, we don't eat just one meal a day. We do have to handle money. Uh, many of us, uh, if you want sex, a sexual life, good. If you don't want sex, we have the freedom to choose. Uh, we, we, buy our, we buy clothing. It just goes on and on. So if you have at the back of your mind a monastic uh, somewhat puritanical. It's not puritanical if you're a monk. That's a, an intelligently worked out plan. That wor- If you're cut out to be a monk or a nun, at least in the Thai forest tradition, if you're cut out for it, it can be a wonderful life. If you're not, then you're there for some other reason that won't let, it won't work. But we have a different life, so we need attitudes that enforce the life that we have. For example, uh, I would say the teacher who affected me most was a man named Jiddu Krishnamurti. Uh, he was from India, from South India, raised among the uh, British aristocrats, the, the creme de la creme of Europe. Not only wealth, nobility, fit, you know, not necessarily inner nobility, uh, but highly educated, intellectual, and very spiritual, whatever. And so that's, at age 14, he was brought up there, educated. Uh, And so he dressed that way. When he went to India, he would dress in Indian clothes. And he had a beautiful taste in clothing. It was given, he learned it. Just as, you know, we've been conditioned, we learn how we dress. And I had friends who just would be, wouldn't even listen to what he was saying because he would come out with a, I don't know if you know the, uh, England, the Savile Row customer tailored clothes and, uh, beautifully designed. What's wrong with that? Why does that make you uns- uns- non-spiritual? But we have stereotypes in our head. And 
somehow if you're dressed in a shabby way or have very few possessions, it makes you spiritual. Well, you might be, and it might help you, but nothing is automatic. I had, when I was in, in the forest tradition, there was a Canadian monk, and we got to know each other, and he confided in me. Well, he had, he had just a few robes, a bowl, and he lived one meal a day, and uh, celibate on it, and so forth. And he just he confessed to me, he said, all day long my mind is thinking, I'm a monk, I'm a monk, I'm a monk, I'm a monk. Okay, that's selfing, that's me. So is he, what's going on here? So in other words, there's no guarantee in the external. It can be useful, but it's just a convention that's designed to help you. And then the question is, does it? So I just give you that as a challenge. There's no question that uh, very few of us know how to handle money or sex or food. We don't know what to do with it or beauty. And that's part of why the world is this way. That's the famous greed, hatred, and delusion. It touches everything. It's not out of style. What the Buddha said, almost going, pushing towards 3,000 years ago, it seems that hasn't changed. So, um, so that's renunciation. I feel that's an important piece because there is a renunciation. To me, there's only one renunciation that's worth talking about. Just personally, you don't have to agree with me or want it. And you know what it is? It just won't surprise you. The ability or the interest in renouncing this need to attach to virtually everything that happens to us as being me and mine, selfing. We've been going through that theme, I think, adequately. Can you renounce? How do you, you don't renounce it by saying, okay, I'm never going to self, I'm not going to be an egomaniac, I'm going to be just a, a nobody. There are books called that, you know, going nowhere, being nobody. Well, if it's true, then it has to be inward, it has to be true. Um, so then the challenge would be, uh, can the practice help you do that? I mean, is, it, is what you're, and how, and in this approach, this style of practice, it's awareness. In other words, you can't stamp out selfing. You can't decide that you're going to be a, an ego, uh, an, that you're going to be a humble. How do you, how do you practice being humble? I, sometimes it's suggested. To me, it's arrogance. I, I've tried, I feel I'm doing an impersonation. Uh, or nonviolent. There's the stream in Buddha Dharma is uh, most clearly, if any of you study some of the teachings, Nagarjuna, uh, the way of negation. You get to be humble by becoming aware of arrogance. And as that falls away, falls away, falls away, falls away, what's left is genuine humility. But you don't call it that. Now, are some people born more self-effacing just naturally? Sure. Are some people more filled up with themselves? Yes. But wherever we are, we have to, we have to work with with the particular, uh, what we've been given. We have no choice. So, uh, but be interested in renouncing uh, this self-centeredness, self-cherishing, and the practice, especially relationships in my experience, but anything, reveals the ways of the self. You can't miss it. But you have to include that as part of practice. And it's not uh, trying to uproot anything or get rid of anything. Then you're back in the same trap in this style of practice. We, uh, we, until you see it for yourself, you, you do, it's hard to really have total trust in the power of awareness. 
Clear seeing is what gets us free. And we'll get, we'll get, get back to the wisdom part. Maybe I should get to it right now. Um, so there is wisdom which ha- has a lot of thinking in it, like the, the exercise that Master Sheng Yen gave me. Because you reinform, from time to time you remind yourself to see impermanence, and then you see it, and something happens. It's useful. It's, a re- it's called reflective practice. Um, I would say that as the practice ripens, as it matures, thought becomes less and less necessary. Uh, and I'm going to go to the end and then go back to our daily life. When the mind is really clear, uh, that is, a, uh, I mentioned that, is emptiness. Uh, emptiness is a fr- shunyata. I don't think we have a good English term for it. Emptiness, for some people, implies worthlessness. For some people, it's frightening. Uh, the ego hears it, and it's, it's either terrified or... Well, the ego is, is the problem. It's saying, uh, that the, where, do, where do I fit in in all this? In other words, it's out of a job. It's not stupid. It sees where you're going. We talk about silence, spaciousness. Well, who's making all the noise and constricting us? The big noisemaker is, is me. So... Uh, a life of awareness and learning. And to begin with, uh, we have a term sati, mindfulness, awareness, whatever you, and panya, discernment. So there's, it's like two different qualities that come together. Uh, a seeing, and then there is some thought in it. Let me give you an example. We have to start where we are. Uh, we have lots of thinking. We're not, comp- emptiness is empty of attachment to me and mine. That's one meaning of it. It's the one that helps me the most. It's not metaphysical. It's, you don't have to speculate on and on about it. It's quite down to earth. In, in those moments when the mind is empty of attachment, things like me or mine come through the mind, but if you're not attached to them, they're, they're benign. They're harmless. Oh, here comes uh, Larry the egomaniac. Hi, come on in. Well, attach to me. Give me some energy. No, I'm just going to watch you. It hates, it hates being watched. <laughs> If you fight it, well, no, it's like a child. I watch my grand. If you can't get your attention through love, then it'll be mischievous. But one way or another, it likes attention. Awareness, just seeing it, you're not for it, you're not against it, you're not drowning in it, you're not denying it, escaping from it, you're just seeing it. Uh, you're, you're depriving it of its nutriment. And it gets weaker and starts to fade. So it doesn't like that. But in the meantime, we're all on the way. So let's say when we get home, here's a term that's very important to know, discriminating wisdom. For example, one of the meanings, oh, when we get home, you've heard, you've heard yourself referred to as yogis, right? And uh, not every Buddhist tradition uses that term. Some Tibetan terminology is yogis. In Burma, everyone's a yogi. The, I don't remember the Tibetans saying that. Uh, I'm sorry, the Thai. Matthew, did the Thai, they didn't call you a yogi there, did they? No. Oh, he's off somewhere. All right. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, yogi, uh, you know, we tend to think of yogi as somebody who can put their left foot behind and touch their right ear and all. Uh, uh, Some of it is included as part of it. It's a wonderful, extraordinary 
uh, it's also another it's eightfold. It's similar. Some of it was taken from the Buddha, according to what scholars are finding out now, because the Buddha came before Patanjali's codification of it. Uh, but the term yogi has meaning that's beyond posture. Uh, one of its meanings, it comes from the Bhagavad Gita, is skill in action. That, to me, is wisdom. Um, wisdom is learning how to live skillfully. In other words, something you can learn. Unfortunately, I don't know if it's unfortunate, it just seems to be true. The main way we learn how to wise up is by being a fool. And some people are willing to see their foolishness and admit mistakes and apologize, and some are not. Having lived this for this long, I see one big difference is some people, the people who are willing to learn from their mistakes, whether they're meditators or not, and those who are not. Are men less able to? It's changing, thanks to you women. But I would say yes, they're much less. I, I, my father's generation, I never heard anyone make a mistake. <laughs> no one was ever wrong. I don't remember one apology. My, my mother made mistakes and apologized. I did, but not those men. They were, they were just perfect. They couldn't help it. <laughs> so um, there's a, there's a, there was a, an article, I think it was in New Yorker a long time ago. There was a brilliant brain surgeon, uh, University of California Medical School, and he would get endless applicants who wanted to do their residency with him from all over the world. And we get everyone with totally great, terrific grades from wonderful schools, great recommendations, and he would have a pile of people, and he could only take a certain number to train in brain surgery. And so he was interviewed and asked, well, how do you decide? He says, well, they all are qualified in, in a sense superficially. They all have good grades, and their teachers think that they're going to be great a surgeon and so forth. He says, one of the things I look for, it's very, very important, is can they acknowledge that they make mistakes sometimes with a patient. They've all been interns already. He said, many don't, they, when they, I, we touch upon it, we ask them, we probe, they don't. And he said, some acknowledge mistakes, but they don't seem to learn from it. And he said, so I look, the pile becomes much smaller. I look for those people who, when they make mistakes, can acknowledge it and learn from it and move on. He said, because Everyone makes mistakes. It's part of life. You cannot learn. There's a certain humility that's required for learning. Certainly self-understanding. Because I think Doug got it last night, and Matthew did as well. If you're going to start looking inside, it's not all good news. Self-knowledge is, in fact, around here they say self-knowledge is bad news. It isn't just bad news, but it is news. And cherished images that you have of yourself as being kind and gentle and compassionate... They may be smashed into pieces when suddenly you see, I thought I was Mother Teresa, I'm Adolf Hitler. <laughs> At least in this moment. And then suddenly you're Gandhi, and well, wait, I'm getting confused here. Well, none of them are really you. They're all just parade coming in and saying, I'm you. And then we, like suckers, we believe in it. And then so... The practice is seeing it all. Just enjoy the show. It's an incredible show. All these representations telling us who we are. There are images, conclusions, ideas, thoughts, and then we, however we came to be that way, we identify with it, and then we make whatever, saying, you're a rotten Vipassana meditation, practice is just not for you, it's too difficult. Yeah, that's true, I am a rotten. Then you come in and we have to listen to that. <laughs> so out of compassion... 
<laughs> for us. <laughs> it's not you. You know, here's what I mean by a representation. Let's say when, uh, very common, when people graduate college, I know when I graduated college, there'd be a f- snapshot of you, you know, with the, the tasseled hat and the robe and parents are very proud and etc. And there's a picture on the, uh, in the uh, in some, somewhere prominent in the living room and a parent has one in the wallet, both parents have them in the wallet and, and scrapbooks full of pictures, you first this way, then this way, all with the, uh, okay. Those are representations of you, they are not you. It's you at a certain p- time, smiling, at your best. It's a happy day. Your family is there. They love you. They're proud of you. And then someone takes a picture and that stands for you. It's really just a second or two of your life. It's not totally irrelevant, but it's a representation. It's telling you something about yourself. If you take that representation and make it stand for the whole you, that's where the problem is. So the mind is doing that endlessly. Here's you as this. Here's another one. And we do it about others as well. We have these. We form conclusions. A couple of evenings ago, the talk was about that. We form images of others, and we don't really see them. Or we have. We ha- now. You now. Here's the thing. The beauty of awareness. You can see your mind doing that. You can see if you as you get quieter, you can become aware of this. What the mind is doing. It's like a dream factory. It's just fabricating notions over and over, uh, through thoughts and pictures. And if, if you just sit there, that's why awareness, sometimes people say, well, this practice is kind of fatalistic and, uh, you know, passive, and how are you going to change? This sets in motion a dynamic. Don't worry, you're not going to get, uh, I was going to say gypped. Can't say gypped. I said it a few years ago, and then someone came up and said, oh, Larry, that's, I'm sorry, I don't have to, it's wrong speech. And I said, why? What's wrong with being gypped? He said, well, what do you have against gypsies? <laughs> I said, Nothing. You know, every, I've been saying that since I was a kid because everyone said it. He said, like, well, it's, a, it's bad-mouthing the gypsies, so you can't... You know, it's the politically correct insanity, you know, where you open your mouth and you're wrong, period. doesn't matter what you say, you're wrong. It's getting narrower and narrower. I can hardly... And, you know, the kind of person I am, do you, how do you think I feel? <laughs> I'm a master of wrong speech, and now... <laughs> going to Buddha Dharma, it's like a prison come to IMS, maximum security prison. (laughs) Except when the four of us are alone upstairs. (laughs) I just hope there's no tape of what goes on. Okay. Okay, so so now let's say uh, the skill that we're talking about. In other words, what's being suggested is what the Buddha is saying in putting it in a somewhat different language, uh, is that it's sometimes translated as wholesome and unwholesome behavior. I'm not crazy about that term. I think it's antiquated and a little bit moralistic. Wholesome. I don't know. When I grew up, it was you'd be a wholesome. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't. It seemed it just none of us wanted to be that growing up. <laughs> it seems so uh, yucky, boring. You know, and all that. Okay, skillful, and now more and more people are translating as skillful, and I, I'm, I think it's great. Um, so what is skill? Uh, when the mind, uh, in other words, what the mind is thinking or feeling, or when it speaks, or when it acts, is what 
is that activity uh, beneficial or harmful? If it's beneficial, it needs to be according to the guidelines of the Buddha. If it's beneficial for you and for others, then it's skillful. Uh, so then you try it. Now let's say it feels like it's obviously going to be skillful for you and others, and then you sp- say something, and you that's why you always have to pay attention. Just taking the five, uh, you know, the precepts, and uh, uh, you can take them, but then you have to pay attention and see, are you living them? So awareness is never out of style. It's always needed. Mindfulness, whatever language you like. So when uh, that comes up, let's say it's as a thought or as an intention, it seemed like it was fine, it was beneficial, be helpful for me and helpful for, for others. And then you say it or you do it and it turns out it isn't. So then you can stop, you know, if, let's say, and you can interrupt it and, and say, or apologize. Those are, one teacher I had, even if it's in the middle of it, just stop it. You know, it's like, just push the pause button and say, no, I didn't really mean that. Or, because sometimes even the Buddha, at the very end of his, uh, now is the Buddha, obviously, let's assume, total emptiness. I mean, no, I want, I don't want, completely content, inner peace. Okay, He would give teachings and they were misunderstood. And so you have to pay attention to the consequences of what you're saying. So even if you intend, so that it's ongoing learning, because sometimes what we think is skillful isn't, and then if we see that we have to change it, or are you willing to change it? Are you willing to learn? Like making mistakes might lead to a certain remorse. It's not a guilt trip in this. The remorse is in the service of learning. It's sort of like, oh, I really screwed up here. Uh, To yourself, I, I see what I did. Uh, and you take some time to, let's see, I'll try not to do that again because I, I, I see the implications of it. So cause and effect, cause and effect is central to the Buddhist teaching. That's why more and more, at least in Cambridge, but I think it's more than Cambridge, more and more scientists are coming to study this because it appeals to your intelligence, to your intellect, for rationality, logic, cause and effect. Uh, you lie or you do something that's off, don't be surprised at the consequences. If you want to call that karma, fine. But you can see it, right? And some of it is right immediately visible. And then the question is, do you learn from it? Unlearn. A lot of wisdom is unlearning and making room for something beneficial to flower. Okay, so, uh, so if something is unskillful, it's just the opposite. Now, it might be good for you, but it's not good for the, if there are pe- other people involved then it turns out that would not qualify. And so these are like guidelines. Then the question becomes, well, how can I tell people? It's a common question I get, certainly in Cambridge. How do I know if it's skillful or unskillful? You have to do the best you can. You can't wait until you're perfect. It's going to be a long wait. But what you can do to the best of your ability, pay attention, and that's discernment, and watch the watch the consequences, the effect of what it is you're saying, thinking, saying, feeling, doing, and learn from it. And if, uh, to begin with, it's probably the mind is not all that clear. Uh, and so your, chan- your chances are less likely to be successful because there's more inaccuracy involved. But we have to start now, wherever we are, and learn. And then it 
it evolves, and the process is important. Don't be preoccupied with some end goal where you visualize yourself as permanent, permanently good, never makes a mistake, always beneficial, always skillful, always wise. That's just selfing again. Larry is a wise, kind, compassionate person. Take it moment by moment, and it's ongoing. Self-knowing, it's not accumulating knowledge. Knowledge is something you get from books. Ah, now we're getting... Okay, so, so far, so good. Let me, let me, the Four Noble Truths. First Noble Truth, there is suffering. That means that's an unskillful effect. That is, you did something to cause suffering, psychological suffering. Second Noble Truth, there's a cause. Craving, attachment. Uh, that's an unskillful cause. Third Noble Truth, cessation. Let's say uh, it, it falls away. That's a skillful cause, a skillful effect. The Eightfold Path, which we've been, whether you know it or not, that's what we've been teaching all week. That's a skillful cause. So Four Noble, it's, all the different Buddhist teachings are dealing with this. And in a certain sense, the journey is refinement, refinement. And thought does play a role because you have to assess and think and evaluate. Now, uh, what I'd like to say next is where this goes. Because <clears throat> uh, there, have been a, there were a few questions that were asked uh, about, well, isn't thinking always needed? No, it isn't. Let me, let me get that we don't have an endless amount of time. Um, hmm. Okay. Let's take the word intelligence. That's a good word, isn't it? We like it. No matter how we apply it. Wisdom too, but intelligence even more seems more practical and alive. Wisdom is something that's on university buildings. You know, be my, every university I've ever seen is, has some, you know, be, the truth unto its innermost part, be mindful of that. Something quote from Socrates, quote from Plato, from, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, intelligence is something, we use it as a compliment, an insult. Uh, but what we mean by it is, uh, certainly one main meaning of it, is the ability to use the beautiful uh, capacity that the human mind has to think, to reason, to logic. If you have a mind that works, be grateful. So sometimes people think, what is it, Dharma is about against thinking? You just become, what, a, a moron? Is that the whole point? No. Uh, if you have a good mind, it's a blessing. It's the question of when to use it and how to use it. The problem is we've been worshipping all the thought and its productions. And we've thought that that thought that we that would fin fix everything it turns out it doesn't but we've defined intelligence as that realm it is a form of intelligence look at all the magnificent creations in if nothing else science technology the arts wherever you look architect so the human uh, brain is capable of producing thoughts that are magnificent but we've put an enormous amount of energy certainly in the modern world and that's hundreds of years back having faith that science would heal everything. Has it? Then there's another, another illusion. Somehow the more information we get 
than the wise will become. So now it's 18 trillion megabytes, 18, 15 zillion megabytes. You know, we're drowning in information. Any, it, better than the Widener Library. That's the li Harvard Library. All there in a little something you can fit it in your pocket. It's the Widener Library in your pocket and then some. Okay, so it's not that we need more information. Now let's move to what, wisdom, uh, uh, what I would say is, is the flowering of wisdom. Uh, when the mind calms down and becomes more still uh, and spacious, uh, we call that emptiness. The Tibetans have a nice term for it. They call it the cognizing power of emptiness. Emptiness is not a stagnation or just... It's not like, sp and space is used as an image a lot. Okay, so this is, we are people, we're filling up this space, the fans and the people. Um, but this space doesn't have cognizing power. Words, cognizing is knowing ability. Now, this is mysterious to me. I, at a certain point, and I think this is one of the joys of meditation, it can restore wonder. I don't know what the, what, I can't use that word, what the pup da pup is going on. <laughs> The more aware I've become, and I can, you know, I've read all the books, and I can give you nice words. I don't know what I'm talking about, because there's something, and it's it enriches my life. It doesn't detract from it. But let's see. When the mind gets that still, in that stillness, uh, it's an awakening of a kind of intelligence. Cognizing power doesn't sound like so. It sounds boring, but. All the compassion, in other words, it activates some kind of very subtle life energy. Very subtle. I don't know if we could measure it. And somehow, all the compassion you could ever want, all the metta you could ever want, it's inherent. Uh, there's a kind of intelligence. It's non-rational. It's not irrational or anti-rational. And it shouldn't be put versus uh, uh, ra logical reasoning and, and the accumulation of knowledge. Not at all. They're both part of the endowment that human beings have. And the, the art that we're learning is how to, how to know when to use one and then to suspend it and to drop into uh, this stillness and then to bring it into our life. I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, look, you might say, whoa, that's nice for him to say. He's been on the path for a hundred years. I just, I, that sounds like I'll never get there. I mean, I can fi hardly find my nostrils. He's talking about a new form of intelligence. Um, it's okay. We're planting seeds. Look, I heard these talks years ago. I didn't know what they were talking about. It was so ahead of me. And, but you may have had a glimmer of it. When the mind gets still, a certain healing goes on, a rejuvenation, a refreshment. Uh, and then somehow, uh, sometimes... Five minutes of sitting in stillness is better than a good night's sleep. You suddenly feel, whoa, I don't know if you've had that. Some of you I know have had it. You've told me. Okay, picture if that starts to more and more become natural in the stillness. But you can, then the mind gets greedy. It wants to get, get that stillness. And stillness is very, very shy. Uh, and you can't order it. or It doesn't respond to commands. What we're doing, it's nagajana. Is by letting go of all these representations, conditions that the mind throws up, seeing them arise and pass away, arise and then as that the mind empties itself, you find that all the stillness you could ever want has always been there. Now, this is a theory. It's not that you're supposed to believe in it. Uh, 
you have to discover it. And then once, you, but you've had little glimpses of it whenever you get silent, between two thoughts, between two breaths. That's like a little crack, a little bit of light shining through. As that grows, you'll see that there's something wonderful in emptiness. It's not just a vacant lot, you know, dead, nothing worthwhile going. We worship, we got to fill things up all the time. The mathematics of Dharma is subtraction. The life, I don't like, worldly life is sacred and profane. Those dichotomies don't make much sense to me. Because if you relate to ordinary life, everything, with a certain attitude, there is no split between what's religious or spiritual or holy and what, the, what are called holy. Because that split is made up by us. It's convention. So the awareness is there. And what kinds of things may... when Let's say you taste... 10 seconds, 30 seconds of some stillness. Often there's either fear or we discount it as not important because our education has not been to value stillness. We don't know that it's a, the tr- what a treasure we've come upon. It's not part of our education. So we're adding that. Now it's a thought that I've put out. But what, if you can allow yourself to recognize it and rest in it, and then it'll pass, and, and then thoughts start in again, telling you who you are, who you should be, who you used to be, and so forth. And then you wake up, and you're aware of them, and then silence comes again. If More and more, we learn how to stabilize it. Uh, and then, how do you bring that into daily life, and how do you develop it in daily life? That's that relationship as mirror that I think we've all gotten at. In other words, when you're interac- interacting with it, let's just limit it to people, because that's the hard one. You have reactions. We can't help it. They're conditioned reactions. They come from our background. If you've been raised in the Soviet Union, to be told that there's a God is idiotic. That person must be a moron. Uh, if told that there's rebirth, what do you? It's, it makes no sense. That person is not intelligent. You tell the same thing with Tibetan. You say, "I don't." MIT person goes to Tibet and says, "I don't think there is anything as rebirth, um, etc." Uh, they'll think you're a moron. Now, those are all beliefs. They may be true and they may not. But we're not asking, no one's being asked to believe anything. We're asking you to to practice and experience what you do and get to know it. So here, the stillness is a a kind of intelligence that's awakened. Let me, uh, this is the best I can do. When you're in relationship, people produce reactions in us. It's like pushing a button. I think it's not a bad term from our culture. You push one button, you get a Coke. Another one, you get an orange aid. Okay, so, you know, sort of, well, you're a jerk, jerk button. You're the one who calls me a jerk, you know. Uh, some, one person throws a punch, another person feels, yes, I am. Uh, a, a third person, you know, it's, so those are conditions, the reaction. We have no choice. We can't help ourselves. They've come through a lifetime. It's habit energy. Awareness, it's not that we kind of totally uncondition ourselves. Some conditions are useful. Keep flossing your teeth and brushing your teeth. Well, it's a habit. I've been trained that I have to drop all conditions if I'm going to be a Buddhist. Yeah, and then you'll have a huge dental bill. Okay, it's more while you're brushing your teeth and flossing for the two billionth time, see if you can be awake while you're doing it. So it's conscious. Then you're practicing. It's not the fact that you do something again and again that makes it a practice. It's the quality of attention you bring to it. Okay, so... As more and more you're right present in the presence of another or others, 
and I think I've mentioned this, but I'm going to go over it one last time, at least for now. Let's say uh, I'm looking at you, if you don't mind. Okay, you're okay. I'm maintaining. Let's say we're talking. I'm I'm maintaining my attention to you, but I haven't lost touch with my inner life. And so it's it's like the tide going in. Sometimes I'm more with you. This is the, the practice. We have to learn how to do it. It doesn't happen. That you have to take it on as a practice. Sometimes I'm more with me and less with you, but I haven't lost touch with you. Sometimes I lose you and I'm all rehearsing what I'm going to say and I'm not listening. Sometimes I'm so lost in you that I don't even know what I'm feeling. So we're learning how to, uh, how social interaction can actually be a way of waking us up so that relationship uh, is here to help liberate us. It's, and, it's, and it's the most difficult thing for us, so it also has the most liberating power. A bad situation is a Zen saying. A bad situation is a good situation. Did you know that? Because all that energy that's trapped there. Okay, I just want to end with this. It's a huge subject, but it's bringing full attention to everything you do. And for, you forget most of the time. Don't be hard on yourself. Just pick, start over again. You're doing the dishes. Do it. Just dishes mind. Dishes are over. Hugging your child. Hugging mind. Hugging your partner. It's sort of like, love you, and your mind is on stocks. You know, like, love you, love you. How was your day? You know, but if I sell that, so, you know, it's so short, I better call it. Oh, yeah, how was school? How was everything? You know, what is that? The practice is seeing that. You can't make that not be there, but what you can do is see it. And in the seeing, somehow we're intimate again with the experience. And so each situation has to be understood in its own right. And here, now, that, now a link. Uh, this will be the end of it. Uh, for years, I've, uh, this is the best way I, I, I can. I've not come up with anything better than this. It's silly, but I don't know anything better, a better way to communicate it. When you tap into stillness, you, you've tapped an energy that you have not had access to before. I, I don't want loving energy. What, you're, you're wiser, you're kinder. Uh, often on retreats when I've had bigger times of it, I didn't know I was kinder. And my wife would tell me, oh, you're you're much much nicer guy since that retreat. I am? Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, so something happens, but you're, you have access to a source of energy, which maybe we had a little bit of it, but mostly it's conditioned energy we're living from. Okay. So think of it this way, and stay with me. I know how stupid it sounds. Let's say there's a toaster and a TV set and a radio. Okay. These are equipment, right? They're different equipment. You, uh, you plug them into the wall, right? Electricity. So electricity runs through the, t the toaster. It, the only thing you can do is you have to put bread in and it toasts it. It doesn't show you pictures because it's limited by the, the kind of equipment it is. It's getting the same electricity, but what it's showing you is just toast. You move on to TV, it's plugged into the same electricity. Sound and pictures come on. That's what a TV can do. It can't make any bread for you. It can't toast it. Then you move into a radio, no pictures, no toast, it's just sound. 
the same energy so that each one of us, you look like a toaster to me. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm a TV set myself. Cur the new ones, the curves or whatever. Uh, so we draw upon that energy, but it's like some people say, with well, this emptiness, what, do you just become like a prefrontal lobotomy patient or an amnesiac? Of course not. You actually express yourself more uniquely because you, there's like a holiday from the egomaniac that we all are living with and in and by, living under the influence of. Um, and when the, the, that energy is responsive, and it, I don't, it's mysterious to me. I don't understand it. I don't know if I ever will, and it's okay with me. So that energy expresses itself through me. I have unique skills and deficiencies. So does everyone in this hall. And we learn how to tap that energy, bring it to life. Sometimes we make a mistake. Sometimes we don't. Pay attention. Learn. So life is ongoing attention and learning. There's attention to what's going on inside, out, what we hear, what we see, inside and outside, and learning from it. And if there's a mistake, see it, drop it, learn, move on. And are you ever going to be perfect? I don't, I don't see the possibility because graduation is death. In other words, that's the challenge. People, I've written a book on it. People say, well, I guess you have no fear of death and you've mastered it. Why, because I wrote a book about it? <laughs> said, check in with me in my last few seconds. We'll see, we'll see how I do. I might be just really a scaredy cat. You know, I want to die at peace. It's a natural process. I've been familiarizing myself with this. Oh, yeah, it's like a leaf falling, and, you know, and well, I've had training in it. And, uh, but that's just training. The test will come when, in a moment like this, it's time for me to die. So more and more you can draw upon the, that beautiful energy that's in all of us. Everyone has it. I call, by the way, there's a tradition called Dzogchen. Some of you said, oh, your teaching sounds like Dzogchen. Uh, I came upon this not through Dzogchen, through just a little old Vipassana practice, helped along by Krishnamurti, of course. But, uh, and then when I came upon it and I was told, you know, there's a tradition that really emphasizes all this and they have beautiful language about it. I started reading about it and it's beautiful, it is. But what it says to me, there's no Dzogchen, there's no Vipassana, there's no Zen. These are all brand names made up. I mean, there's one mind, you get to it, you tap it, and then the challenge is living from it. And the forms are useful. Some people are more drawn to what's called Dzogchen. Do it. This, etc. <laughs> Can we go home now? <laughs> You know, a couple of, any questions? Just, uh, just we have time for just one or two. <laughs> Doug, Doug promised some questions last night and he d didn't come through. Anything, anything burnt? Sure. Not a question, but... You're going to have to stand up or, or at least say, you don't have to stand up, but you'll have to, because you, you have no mic, yeah. It's my job. <laughs> it's how I make a living. Warning, don't trust what I have to say. It's like a used car salesman. 
you know, of course I'm going to tell you how wonderful this path is and the Buddha was fantastic and blah, blah, blah. T- you know, this is how I make my living. Of course I'm going to say that. <laughs> Test it. Find out if it's baloney or there's some truth to it. Read the Kalama Sutta of the Buddha because the Buddha said that. I'm not just being a wise guy. I work, he's my boss. <laughs> and what I learned from him is it's like a hypothesis. These teachings are a set of hypotheses. And you test them, and some prove true and some don't. If it doesn't, throw it out. The Dalai Lama has said uh, if science shows certain teachings of the Buddha to be false, I'll drop it. Good for him. Yeah. But thank you for your compliment. I need all the help I can get. Maybe one more or two. Anything about daily life? Application of this? Yes, please. I just didn't quite understand your, uh, your analogy of a toaster or a TV. And okay. They're all using the same energy coming in. Yes. Producing a different results. You understand. Yeah, you said it more briefly and more concisely and better than I did. Yeah, no. Yeah, please. I just want to go home and watch a good film. Okay, please. Oh, yeah. I'm so, this one. I, how did I miss this one? Meditation is an explosion of love. People are saying, "Where's compassion in all this?" We got. I got some notes, but and I so. Particularly with people. Is that yeah. Yes. Ego is no. No. Okay. No. It's a. It's a vital question. What we call love. I love you, honey, baby, booby. But if you, <laughs> but if you even look at another person, I'll kill you. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's another love. First of all, when you tap this energy, you could call it love. That's what it's on. Now, then the challenge becomes, it's a very important, because what little I've tapped of it, my, whatever my little capacity to love was, uh, it definitely, it, it, it dramatically enhanced itself when I started tapping this energy. And then there was a period where I just wanted to hug everyone, you know, a policeman, you know, always, you know, he's keeping me safe and he's got his gun, you know, like, kiss me, I love you, you know. (laughs) You know, Uh, so then there's appropriateness, how to express it, you know, that that would be good with my wife, but with the policeman, I'd be in another building after that, yeah. So, but, now, compassion. Here's where... Sometimes people will say, and maybe those of you who are relatively new may have this thought, this seems awfully self-centered. All you're talking about is your suffering and taking care. Um, the best thing you can do for the people in your life is wise up. And, the only, and uh, no one can do it for you. In other words, it's a gift to everyone who's in your life, the degree to which you start to get to know yourself and let go of what needs to be let go of. And... All the love you could ever want is available. It's blocked. Now, so there is a love. Um, it's, we call it love. It's a, a, a kind of a, con- it's conditioned, isn't it? And it, it is usually self-centered. 
uh, especially the honeymoon phase. It's wonderful. And then somehow it, it's gone. So what happened? So it's a different kind of, and we, what we call it is not, it's, it's nice. Now, let's see how I can put, the love that I'm talking about that you tap when the mind is really in a sustained way empty, it's as real as death. It's a real force in the universe. It's not something you practice and cultivate. Um, it's real. And you tap it, and, uh, you know, even if it's just a trickle, and then the challenge is to express it. Uh, now, we have conventions. We're being encouraged, all religious teachings, to be kind, to be generous, uh, etc. They're working from the outside in. And if, all, if, if just that worked, the planet wouldn't look the way it does. In other words, that's not enough. All the religions have given us very good values to live by. Uh, it doesn't... Just take a look at the planet. And it's always been... There. So we need some inner... Both. I'm not saying don't give those teachings. Like, I learned all these things in Sunday school, Hebrew school, that I learned here. But I didn't, they didn't teach me how to tap something that was more reliable than just cultivating a quality. Do you see what I'm getting at? Something... There's more to go? I think there is. Uh, you have a look on your face. I was particularly interested in, like, between people. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> you think it's about squirrels? Yeah, I love squirrels. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in other words, what I'm trying to say is the benefits that come out of this, that's what you have to share with. Let's say there's someone in your life, I gather, or, or, they, or you'd like there to be, or whatever. We all, we, we all, love is good. Not always. All right. No, <laughs> but, but you do have to, look, um, let me uh, very briefly tell you the, uh, the main way I learned this, the power of this. So I have fair amount of confidence in what I'm saying. Uh, my wife, you know, we went through courtship and honeymoon love and all that, and then it settled down and fine, and there was a terrible catastrophe, terrible catastrophe. There was a suicide, one of her daughters. I, I, she had two daughters when I married her. Um, without going into all the details, it's the worst thing that could happen to a parent. So I'm married to that person. I didn't know her daughter that well, but I knew her for about three years or so, and it was painful for all of us. My wife was unable to be, to have, to do joyful, fun, and wonderful things for a number of years. And I learned the difference between gratification and love. Uh, and I was surprised. I, I surprised. I was surprised myself that I had more that I discovered that distinction that a lot of what is called sex is just, excuse the word, fucking. Uh, the, and then we use the word making love. A lot of what we call making love, maybe. But what I saw was, because I was not getting gratified, it didn't affect how much I loved her. And that surprised me, because I think that before that, I was mainly you know, satisfied with, do you love me, honey, baby, boo, you know, all of that, like everyone else. And what I saw was, wow. Uh, and then, of course, she started to heal. And it's, uh, do you see what I'm getting at? Um, so maybe that would help. Gratification and, and love that's not conditioned. Maybe that might help. One is conditioned. In other words, 
the love is there as long as the conditions are there. And the other is, I think some of the great human beings on the planet, His Holiness, possibly Gandhi, others, I think, uh, I think they, they know exactly what this is and that's why they can, it's authentic. But you still have to express it appropriately for each person. And that's wisdom. Could we have a few moments of silence, please? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you all for your attention and for sticking it out. We've had beautiful weather, but you've come into this room anyway. Have a safe journey home. Enjoy the rest of the summer. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.